An increasing number of countries around the world have been trialling a basic income for their citizens, and the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the need for governments to re-evaluate and strengthen social safety nets. The UN has called for a temporary basic income to provide a lifeline for the world's poorest. Could something like a universal basic income help in COVID-19 recovery, and in the longer term, help to address some of society's biggest challenges? In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS fellow Phil Maida speaks with Guy Standing, an economist at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He's a leading expert on the basic income concept, and author of numerous books, including Battling Eight Giants, Basic Income Now. So, Guy Standing, hello and welcome to the Between the Lines podcast. Well, hello too, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. To get us started then, just at a very basic level, what makes basic income different from other more established or better known forms of social welfare? A basic income would be an economic right of every individual. It would be a modest payment each month to each man, each woman with a smaller amount for a child that would be given without conditions. It would be an economic right. And fundamentally, it would be non-withdrawable. So you would continue to have it. It's quite different from minimum income schemes, which are means tested. And the problem with those, which have been widely introduced across the world in recent decades, despite Richard Titmus famously saying, uh, a benefit for the poor is invariably a poor benefit. And the trouble is they create poverty traps They have high exclusion errors. A lot of people who should be receiving them don't because of various flaws in the system. And they inevitably lead to forms of workfare uh, because you have to uh, differentiate between those who are poor because they're lazy or whatever and those who are poor for other reasons. So they introduce all sorts of sanctions and the rest of it, and you end up with universal credit. A basic income is an economic right And there are good reasons for it, which we'll come to. So it goes to everyone, regardless of who they are and regardless of what they do or what they do with it, whether they need it or not. I I never use the term universal. I use the term basic income or common dividends or social dividends. It would be paid to everybody that would not preclude uh, taxing back from the rich so that you could have it uh, so that it mainly benefits the the lower income groups. But the important thing is that regardless of your work status, regardless of your marital status or household status or gender or whatever, it's paid to you as an economic right. But I don't use the term universal because you would have to have, for pragmatic political reasons, some sort of uh, limit on who would be entitled to it. You would have to say, for example, that Uh, migrants who come into the country legally would have to wait for a certain period before they start to receive it. That doesn't mean you ignore them and don't give them any any assistance, but they would have to be treated separately. And for people like myself, I'm, I'm British, I'm a British citizen, but I work and live in Europe, and therefore I'm not a resident, so I would not be receiving it. But But otherwise, everybody who is a a usual resident of the country would receive it. Yes. Hmm. So we're going to, we're going to turn to the 
politics, the practical politics of it in a little while. And I think that's a good uh, thread to lay out already for it. One thing I found very striking in the book was how you argued the case for basic income really on the basis of ethical and moral reasons, which is quite different from how others have often argued by pointing to what could be practically achieved with it, such as maybe particular health incomes, health impacts or improvements on child poverty indicators. And just specifically for our listeners, you argue that everyone is entitled to a share of the commons and uh, that a basic income would be something like a dividend from the wealth of the commons or a compensation payment for any wealth taken from the commons privately. Can you just expand on that idea of the commons and how a basic income would relate to it? Yeah, I trace the idea of basic income to the Charter of the Forest of November 1217 which was sealed in Westminster uh, Cathedral at the same day uh, alongside the Magna Carta. And they are the two foundation stones of the British Constitution and the constitutions of all democracies, actually. And the Charter of the Forest said everybody has a right to subsistence. Everybody had a right to raw materials and access to the commons and that the commons should be the, the, the environment that provides for the pursuit of basic subsistence. That's, that's where I trace uh, basic income to. And in my previous book, which is called Plunder of the Commons, uh, a manifesto for sharing public wealth, I trace how essentially the income and wealth of all of us you and me included, is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of past generations than anything we do ourselves. And it is a, it is a conceit to think that we have somehow got our particular income or wealth through our own efforts. We actually have relied on the commons, the commoners, and the people who've contributed to the wealth of the country over numerous generations. And if we accept private inheritance of private riches, which is a lot of something for nothing, don't forget, a term that politicians like to condemn basic income, but they don't condemn private inheritance, I notice. If they're going to condemn basic income as something for nothing, I want them to stand up tomorrow morning and say they are against all private inheritance, because that otherwise they're total hypocrites. But the, but the essence is to say, look, our wealth, our collective wealth is due to the efforts of millions of people and in a sense a basic income would be like a common dividend on our collective wealth. Now you can translate that into an agenda for building a commons fund which I discuss in both books and in, in, in basic income and how we can make it happen, how we pay for that. And, and I think that that is the first justification for a basic income. The second justification is a matter of, of ecological justice. Most of the pollution is caused by the wealthy doing their activities. Most of the pain caused by pollution is borne by the disadvantaged and the groups I've been writing about. And in a sense, it's a matter of compensating uh, those who are suffering from the pollution, if you like, and those who are, are causing it. And it's also, if you want to be religious, it's a matter of religious justice. 
you know, I'm not religious, but I can accept the argument that God gives people unequal talents, some making money, some doing other things. And in a sense, a basic income would be compensating those who don't have the talent of making money, etc. And, and therefore is a matter of religious justice. And the second justification for basic income is that it would enhance freedom. It would enhance uh, liberal freedom, the ability to be moral. I've discussed that at length, what that means, but I can respect that. That's a, that's a liberal freedom argument. It also strengthens republican freedom. The, the republican freedom means being free of the domination by others. And I, th I condemn some people on the left for not respecting this enough, just as I condemn the libertarians for not respecting it at all. The essence of republican freedom is that you can make decisions for yourself. You don't have to depend on a figure of authority. So it's basically a form of uh, collective giving back rather than of redistribution. And at the same time, it's, it's seen as to be an enabler of individualism. An enabler and an enabler of to be social solidaristic, an enabler to be a commoner, to be commoning, a word that's gone out of use, but I'm, I'm hoping through the books that it's, that it's put back into use. A sense of being able to make decisions collectively. The right to have rights is built with basic security. And, and, and basic security is a human need, is a human need. And it's, it's a public good. It's a superior public good because if we all have basic security, the value will increase for all of us. And I developed that argument in the books. To make, to make these abstract ideas just a little more tangible, you know, your book gives a lot of examples of cases and actually has an overview of cases where basic incomes have been tested or piloted already. Can you perhaps give us just one example that you find makes it particularly clear why a basic income would be so attractive? There have been pilots in the United States, in Canada, in Finland, in India, in Africa, in the UK, uh, and, and so on. And they've had different methodologies. You can criticize some of the methodologies for not being uh, uh, one way or another a full basic income. But what is extraordinary is that the results of all of these pilots and experiments have been consistent. In other words, there, there's no contradictions from the outcome. And I give you some of the, the outcomes that, that have struck me. Every pilot has shown that they, having a basic income improves health. Very important in this pandemic, of course, and has a tremendously strong Im positive impact on mental health. And that is something borne out remarkably. It also shows that it results in children being uh, better at schooling, attending more, uh, uh, succeeding more, etc. One pilot showed that children that in families that receive the basic income compared with others who are not, by the time they were age 16, were one year ahead on average. And, and I've discussed that, that particular pilot. It also results, and this is so, so important against the critics, it also results in more work, not less, and more productive work, not less. The critics say if you had a basic income, people would become lazy. 
The fact is that a basic income enables people to do more work and to be more productive. And it's so important that because it's a pure prejudice that if you had a basic kingdom. And this These argument are the sorts of things we find in, in, in countries from India to Finland. That's right. And, and, and in the case of our Indian pilots, uh, we saw a dramatic improvement because it increased secondary work activities. It enabled more people to spend time and effort on small-scale entrepreneurial activities. It increased their income security so that if one particular economic activity suffered for seasonal or other reasons, they could turn to spending more time and effort in another. And it improved the, the communal uh, solidarity in work because people didn't feel so threatened that other people were making more than they were. It, it gave increased solidarity. And I think that's an also a very important outcome of a basic income system. Don't forget, Every individual in those villages or wherever are receiving it and it induces a sense of altruism and involvement. So, I, and the books that I've written on, on the India pilots and the, the more general Penguin one uh, summarize all the results of that. But this, this book was written for a more specific purpose. Which is exactly what I wanted to ask about because you discuss basic income as something that could help us what you call, or you, what you refer to as battling eight giants stalking the land. And, and just to briefly list them, they're also printed really large in large font on the title of the book, uh, on the title page of the book. The giants are inequality, insecurity, debt, stress, precarity, automation, populism, and extinction. What's behind this theme of the eight giants? Well, in 1942, William Beveridge, as most social scientists know very well, was asked by the government to write a report on design of social policy after the war. And it's, it's a long technical report, but it was epoch defining. And essentially it was re-embedding the economic system in society as Karl Polanyi had wanted uh, for the post-war period. And Beveridge, on page two of the summary of his, his report, said, this is a time for revolutions, not patching. And the challenge is to slay five giants. And his five giants were disease, ignorance, idleness, squalor, and want. And I've used that sense of imagery in the work that I've been doing in recent years. And when John MacDonald, then Shadow Chancellor, asked me to prepare a report in which Labour, had they been elected, would do pilots of basic income around, I said, well, look, I'm going to write this as a statement that we, today, this was last year, are faced with a challenge where these eight giants are blocking the road to a good society and creating a much more fragile economic system so that you would only need a small shock and the whole thing would become a major crisis. Now, I wrote this and elaborated on how these giants had been growing 
under the aegis of neoliberalism and rentier capitalism, which is the characterization I've given in previous books to global capitalism today. And these eight giants have become awesomely threatening. And basically, I've said that a basic income as a part of a new income distribution system won't slay these eight giants, but it will weaken the strength and the threat posed by them, would reduce inequality, reduce insecurity, lessen stress, help people pay down private debt, uh, lessen the sense of precarity, which is a sense of being a supplicant. Uh, and most critically, I said that the critical giant for the threat and the critical giant that I think will tip people into supporting basic income en masse is the threat of extinction. And I said this, the growth of this threat is, I believe, what will make the precariat in particular, but many other people too, suddenly converts to a, a basic income. And I said this, I said this in the sense that we need eco-taxes. We need to get control of our environment because viruses depend on us not having that sense of balance with our environment. We've been now seeing that. I didn't predict that particular event, but this threat of extinction means that we need eco-taxes, we need to live differently, and therefore we need these things, but they will be politically unpopular unless you recycle the revenue gained from eco-taxes in the form of common dividends so that the low-income groups and the precariat in particular benefit. And in addition, the common dividends will encourage people to do more work that is not labour and more commoning than resource-depleting labour in jobs. And part of the book is a critique of the jobs fetish and the critique of, of various alternatives that are presented by old social democrats against basic income. But the interesting thing is the book came out in March, right? Just, just when the pandemic had struck, so I couldn't do any of book launch events and so on that have been scheduled. And it, I was at that point invited by Massive Attack to make a video which is basically based on the book. Uh, and basically I said, and I'd written in Spanish newspapers right at the beginning of the pandemic, that this, the pandemic is the trigger of the slump. It is like the shooting of the Archduke uh, in July 1914 that triggered the, the war, but wasn't the cause of the war. These eight giants are what had created an incredibly fragile system that would not be able to stay if there was even a modest downturn, a modest crisis, much worse than in 2008. And I think that this is a, a global lesson. It's not only applicable to Britain, even though most of my examples and, and the text was written for a British audience, but this eight, the eight giants uh, model framework and the fact that we've now got a pandemic slump I'm calling it a slump because it will only become a depression if it lasts for a year or more. I think it will last for a year or more, but it's a slump at the moment. And there's one lesson that we're learning in this 
pandemic slump, which is that the resilience of all of us, the resilience of society, will depend on the resilience of the most insecure people in society. If there is a large group left insecure, we will not get out of this pandemic. So is, is the pandemic now something like the, a ninth giant blocking the road, or is it more like the event that makes us finally have to battle with all of them? Because I, your, video, I, your video collaboration with, with the Bristol-based trip-hop duo Massive Attack kind of suggests that it's the ninth giant that now we also have to face off. I, I don't mind whether uh, the public imagery is helped by seeing it as a ninth giant or as part of that seventh giant extinction. I think there's pretty strong evidence now that the way we've been treating nature, our economic model, has left us vulnerable to payback time, if you like, from actually us suffering the threat of extinction ourselves because we pushed nature to the limits. And, and therefore, it, you can see it as part of the outcome of that particular giant, or you can see it uh, as a ninth giant. I don't mind. I, with the video, I let it seem like the ninth giant because it had to be brief and the rest of it. But for me, they're, they're, they're a collective strength is what's frightening. And we need a strategy, not with just one policy, but a whole progressive strategy to weaken all of these giants. And a basic income for me now has become an economic imperative besides an ethical imperative. And instrumentally, it would help dramatically. But at the moment, the furlough schemes and the various other selective schemes that have been introduced are not only just palliatives, not addressing the structural problems, but they're actually extremely regressive. They're giving to wealthier people much, much more than they're giving to the precariat or the lumpen precariat. And this, for me, is making the situation structurally worse and more fragile because there will be more pandemics. So for me, the, the, the arguments about, about the fragility and the lack of resilience are linked to these eight giants. And, and this is a global phenomenon. I did a, a webinar in South Africa last week, and apparently there were some 30,000 viewers because the the essence of the themes can be understood there and other places uh, just as easily as, as in Britain. So let's unpack the politics of this a little bit more. We've You've already mentioned that uh, you'd see a basic income as, as part of the solution to the massive uh, anthropogenic ecological crisis going on at the moment, not just the pandemic, but also the climate catastrophe, um, but at the same time not being enough on its own. So you mentioned carbon taxes or, or, or other forms of making sure that there is less uh, destruction going on. And so people are compensated for, in a way, what it, what it costs them to, to destroy the commons less. But I mean, the, the left-right divide is very unclear in the case of basic incomes, because on the, on the one hand, a basic income is, of course, an idea with a lot of obvious appeal for political progressives. It redistributes. At the same time, you've mentioned also that the idea has some critics within the traditional political left, while it also has supporters from quite far uh, across the aisle, if you like, politically, from libertarians or advocates of a minimalist night watchman state. So, so 
you know, should progressive proponents of the idea perhaps be a bit concerned about these strange bedfellows? I, I often get uh, this question. It's a perfectly legitimate question. I, what I found is the most vehement, hostile, insulting critics come from the old social democratic left. And they are still wedded to laborism and a welfare state system that's, that's withered long ago. And their politics and their political appeal has withered long ago. And, and they are wanting yesterday back a, a state uh, controlled basic services, a term universal basic services. If you un try and unpack it, it's, it, it's nothing to do with universalism or basic services. It's about state provision and an old model which wouldn't work and would be uh, horribly uh, patronizing and paternalistic. They, are, they tend to be opposed. As so then what say, about the supporters on the, right? on the other side? You know, because yeah, it, it is I, quite I striking say. that the wealthiest, some of the world's wealthiest people have spoken yeah. out in favor of basic incomes, whereas it's not fully clear whether a majority of voters in countries like the UK would support it. Well, I'll come to the support because it's very strong now. Uh, just to answer that last point, the latest opinion polls had over 70% people saying they supported basic income. And this result is replicated all across Europe it's replicated, as I've just mentioned, South Africa, even higher percentages. And, and it, it's, the pandemic has made people uh, appreciate why we need it. The support on the right is very interesting. There are some libertarians, uh, certainly not my politics. I don't like their politics at all. I'm not frightened by them. They, they can be shown up to be charlatans or ideologues with, with a horrible agenda. We can defend the NHS. We can defend a social state on its own merits. That's the point, on its own merits. I'm not worried about those libertarians. More interesting, you've got some of the plutocrats of Silicon Valley. I've been invited there to talk several times. I've been invited to Davos to talk about it and met some of these characters. I never expected anything like that. And, and I've spoken up and they basically are frightened of neo-fascism as much as you and I are frightened by it. There, uh, that's right. And I quote those those examples in the, the opening of the Corruption of Capitalism book, which preceded these two. And what they want is a well-functioning market economy, those people. And they've come to realize that you can't have a well-functioning market economy unless people have basic security in which they can make choices. That's why Milton Friedman came round, joined our network, and moved away from a negative income tax, which he'd proposed long before. Um, they, so for them, that's their rationale. Okay? I don't fear that. I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, line of arguing. It's not my line of argument. It's not my line of argument. But if you look back historically, it's interesting that some of the opponents of all social progressive policies that have come into being, some of the most vehement opponents have been those people calling themselves on the left. Okay. And some of the supporters have been those on the right. 
So one of the eight giants that we're battling is automation, the rise of robots and algorithms and how that's uh, affecting the ability to earn a living uh, through selling one's labor, through working. Uh, how, how does a basic income work to tackle this giant? Well, I've de described the threat of automation as a giant threatening a good society. But I don't believe in what's called the lump of labor fallacy. I don't believe that we're suddenly going to be made redundant because robots have taken over all the work that needs to be done. I do believe that in the current global rentier capitalism, the automation is both disruptive and is increasing inequality and increasing the flow of income and wealth to the owners of robots, if you like, those who are in, in making patents and so on. And I think that, in fact, we should be encouraging many forms of automation. Why do we want to be creating jobs, cleaning public toilets, if we could automate that activity and avoid the need for toilet cleaners? I, you know, it seems to me idiotic that you want to put the preservation and generation of jobs, 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 jobs. Well, David, than... David Graeber, who sadly died yes. last week, would have called them bullshit jobs, jobs yep. that just did. seem to he be did. created uh, to keep people busy. That's right. And I'm very sad because he was a friend and, and it was a sad loss. This, the sense of inducing people to have jobs and talk about a job guarantee it's actually an excuse to be driving people to be doing things they don't want to do. And whereas we should be encouraging more uh, informal forms of work, more resource preserving work rather than resource depleting labor and using automation to free up our time to spend it on better pursuits, better challenges and actually doing away with a lot of jobs. And in the process, uh, that can only be done if we have a new income distribution system where more of the income going to the technological uh, corporations are recycled to the rest of society because those uh, people making their billions from patents and so on, many of them have made a pebble of a contribution to a Gibraltar of technological advances made by huge numbers of other people, okay? And so you can't justify them getting all that money by any means. But we need to say that ideas are part of the commons. Let's go back to Thomas Jefferson's original idea. He said, ideas in nature cannot be made the subject of property. And I think we need to rescue that principle. And having a basic income system would help deal with that, because basically we would say more of the income going to the plutocrats has to come through back to the commoners. And that's why the link between automation must be seen in context. It is a threat at the moment, but it doesn't need to be the threat it is. This is about enabling societies to adapt to what is changing with further automation rather than to try and uh, halt technological progress. Exactly. 
many of our listeners will be tuning in from around the world and and some will be already quite aware of the broad-based cash transfer schemes that countries like brazil and mexico have uh, built in the last two decades which for instance in brazil created one of the first ever as far as i'm aware sustained reductions in inequality in a peacetime situation but at the same time i i I'm aware that this is not quite exactly what you're advocating. So can you briefly explain the differences between such cash transfer programs and what you advocate in terms of a basic income? Yeah, the the interesting thing was that I went to Brazil in 1995 and proposed basic income in the Senate. And a lot of uh, senators uh, and Congress people were opposed. And then when Lula came in, he introduced the Bolsa Familia, which is the one you've just been talking about. And he's, I happened to have a, an hour-long discussion with him in 2010 when he was still president. He, and he told me, he said, I know I was only re-elected president because of the Bolsa Familia and the advocacy of basic income. Now, Bolsa Familia, the minister in charge, knew that it had conditionality, the parents had to send their children to school, etc. But of course, he also realized he was a good, good man. He was a supporter of basic income. Uh, that that uh, that was cruel. If you can't send your little child from the favelas into into school and you got penalized, it was penalizing the children, and you would often not be able to have controlled anything that happened. And therefore, they didn't they didn't particularly apply it. Sadly, the conditionality and the use of Bolsa Familia, particularly by the current government, uh, Bolsonaro, he it basically has been perverted to a large extent. And it was never extended to being a whole country. But now, actually, they've introduced force majeure, uh, a form of basic income in Brazil. And it's, it's enhancing the popularity of a man who's done you know, terrible things as president, a disgrace, a really disgusting situation. But sadly, unless the left wake up to the potential, the emancipatory potential and the popularity of a basic income, the right will use it in this way. And that's one of the reasons why I say to all my friends on the left, we have to be in the vanguard for a new income distribution system, or else we will pay the political price. It is that is simple. Talking of the price, though, uh, op opponents and skeptics often say that basic income proposals would be unaffordable, especially in the least developed countries. Uh, do they have a point? No, they don't. But I understand where the criticism is coming. And I've got a long chapter in basic income and how we can make it happen on alternative ways of paying for it. A basic income in a developing country, if you had it, say, in India, would come to something like 4% of GDP. At the moment, they're giving out subsidies that mainly benefit the wealthy and upper-income upper groups that come to 5 or 6% of GDP. So you'd only have to replace the regressive existing subsidies on fuel, on PDS with the public distribution system and so on, which are terribly uh, inefficient and inequitable, with a basic income that's that's that would be very popular, and uh, you you could pay for it easily. 
And what we did in one of our pilots in India, in West Delhi, was we gave people the choice. We said, okay, you can have the existing subsidized schemes under the PDAS, or you can have a basic income of equivalent money value. And initially, about half chose one, half chose the other of the hundreds that we were piloting. But very quickly, uh, a lot of the families that had opted to keep the subsidies, rations and so on, were coming to our, our researchers and saying, can we change? Please, can we change to the basic income? Because it gives freedom. It gives, it gives people the capacity to make choices along their own lines. That's why I dislike the, the basic services line, because the basic services basically says to people, we know what you want and we will magnanimously give it to you. Whereas a basic income system says, I don't know what you want. It would be impertinent for me to think I know what you want, but I do think that you should have the means to pursue what you think you want. There's a difference in psyche and difference in, in morality to my, to my mind. And, and I think that it's affordable in developing countries. It's easily affordable in South Africa, for example, or in Kenya. We've shown that in various ways. And it generates more taxable income. It generates more income in general. It reduces the need for remedial social policies and therefore has positive feedback effects that lower the cost quite considerably. In Britain, I'm proposing that a commons capital fund be established with levies on all forms of illegitimate taking of our commons. That would include a land value tax. It would include eco taxes. It would include various levies on things that are polluting in different ways and that are taking from our commons. And you can very quickly show that we could build up such a fund along the lines of the Norwegian pension fund, incidentally, and therefore build up the capacity to pay a higher and higher basic income. You'd have to introduce a governance system that was independent and democratic so that they could determine changes in the level. So it would avoid political capture by one party or the other. And you could do it very easily with building up. At the moment in Britain, wealth has, private wealth has risen from what it used to be 300% of GDP to today over 700%. Most wealth, over 60%, is inherited. That's a basic income of enormous proportions for a tiny minority. I believe we should be taxing wealth to the same extent, if you like, as income, if not more. At the moment, we hardly tax wealth at all. That's crazy. So, I mean, and this, this is going on in, in, of course, practically or nominally, but in, in, in the UK, in case practically democratic societies, uh, just looking at the question of what next and how to get there, I mean, what would it take to uh, bring such a model of basic income, you know, with its redistributive taxation and everything to a vote in a country like the UK and to, to convince an overwhelming majority of voters to uh, vote for it? Well, I was very interested a couple of months ago 180 members of parliament signed a petition demanding the introduction of a basic income. 180, cross-party, 
And we have seen the establishment of basic income hubs where groups in different parts of the country are proposing that there should be basic income pilots in their city or town or area. I've been proposing that for some time and how it could be done I propose in the book where I say if we can't convince government to introduce a basic income now, let the very least say to them, let it be tried out in places that would like to try it out instead of existing systems and that that should be piloted for a year or two. We've now got a consistent plan helped by funds from the Scottish National Party and the Scottish Parliament, cross-party, that was funded, of to do it in four areas of Scotland. There's also a plan in Sheffield. There's also a plan in Liverpool. There's also a plan in Cardiff and, and in Northern Ireland. There, there are groups that are lobbying and, and designing schemes that could be done. And I would say to the British government, OK, you still are opposed to it because of your ideology and your claims about work and not people shouldn't have something for nothing when you give that to yourselves. But let's try it for the sake of the population, the sake of that resilience, the sake of getting out of this pandemic. Because the way you've been going will not get us out of this pandemic slump. And that, that I think, is a message that people are internalising and are beginning to articulate themselves. I, I think this is a moment, a potentially transformative moment, where the precariat suddenly finds its voice, its feet, and that's why I support the Extinction Rebellion 100%. And I think this is a moment where more of us can be involved in putting pressure on the politicians. We must always remember that politicians have spaghetti backbones. They won't do things unless we pressurise them to do it. Roosevelt understood that. I quote a famous, uh, probably a apocryphal report about him being convinced and telling the people, go out and force me to do it in the streets. And, but I think there is something to do that. And I'm, I'm excited now by the energy of the precariat. So the in that energy... sense, the coronavirus pandemic is actually giving this project more hope because it's perhaps making more people yeah. members of the precariat and reminding of right. them of That's just right. how fragile their existence is without a basic yeah. universal uh, form of protection. Exactly. And, and I, I, I really feel that, that enormous... That's why 70% plus people are saying that they want a basic income. And, and I think it's bringing out this sense of compassion and empathy with others. Which is which we also saw in part of the social response to the pandemic in the UK. With exactly. neighbours suddenly getting That's to right. know each other and support right. each other. So there's That's really right. something I, there to uh, mobilise. Yeah, there is. And, and I think a basic income moving, I mean, and this is moving down a road, a different road. It's the opposite of universal credit which penalises, punishes, condemns. It, it, it sort of divides us to them and us. They, we, of course, that sort of language. We've got to get away from that. And I think a, a basic income and the morality behind it is something that can, 
connect with people, strengthen that sense of compassion and altruism, because more and more of us realize any of us can be hit by this pandemic. Any of us could be thrust into the precariat, not perhaps the plutocrats at the top, but almost all of us realize we are in this common set of circumstances. And that, I think, is bringing out the better, better sense of morality of all of us. And that's the key point. That's a delightful point to end on. And I also just personally hope that this really is an idea that has found its time and place. So thank you very much, Guy Standing, for this delightful interview. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.